Hello and welcome to Political World, the discussion programme that takes a look at politics of places and systems around the world. I'm Sam. And I'm also Sam. This week, Zimbabwe. We'll first look at an overview of the country before exploring the history, particularly the rise and fall of Robert Mugabe, and where this leaves us today with the elections approaching at the end of July. So, Sam, uh, shall we begin with an overview? Yeah. So, where is Zimbabwe? Uh, well, sub-Saharan Africa, obviously, um, landlocked, north of South Africa, sort of squat in the middle, um, with Mozambique to the east, Botswana to the west, Zambia to the north, so quite central, um, but quite diverse in terms of the sort of landscape and so on. And then the population is 16 million? It is. Um, and there are two main ethnic groups, uh, the Shona people, which is 80%, and the Ndebele people, which is 20%. Indeed. Um, um, that's quite significant in its history. And it certainly the is. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Ndebele being based in the southwest of the country, um, by Bulawayo in the Matabeleland province. Um, yeah, and Bulawayo is like the capital of the Ndebele area. Yeah, and was traditionally the sort of commercial capital of or industrial capital of, of what was Rhodesia as well. Um, mm-hmm. Quite significant as a city. And, and so English is the language of business and of education, but people at home use either Ndebele or Shona to speak. Yeah, and the two have often been used quite sort of interchangeably as well. Like Robert Mugabe's speeches often moved between English and then into genre. But obviously English is very much the language of business and the language that is used internationally um, from Zimbabwe. And it's quite a poor country with a GDP per capita purchasing power parity of about uh, 2,300 US dollars. Yeah. Um, but and inequality is quite high with a Gini uh, of about 44. Yeah, but obviously an economy that's gone through some problems um, GDP is probably not the best estimate of how well it's actually doing because um, conventional economic indicators don't really work anymore given that it's kind of unique. But I'm sure we'll come on to that. In a yeah, bit. and <clears throat> the the thing about education and health, they're obviously doing quite badly at the moment, but at one point they were doing quite well because they were quite an obsession of Robert Mugabe. Yeah, I mean, it certainly used to be um, considered more developed than it is now. It's one of the countries that has receded, if mm. you like, Um but obviously the reasons for that are very hotly contested. And so uh, whites today make up about 0.2% of the population or something, not not much higher than that. Yeah. Um, but they once made up in like 1975, they were making up around 8% of the population. Um, and there are two reasons for that. Obviously, white population hasn't grown as much, but also there's been an awful lot of white movement out of Zimbabwe. Yeah, but obviously Zimbabwe's history as a sort of settler colony gives it quite a unique kind of characteristics in Africa, um, similar to South Africa in terms of it experienced a similar kind of process, um, which again, I'm sure we'll come on to. Um, mm-hmm. But white Zimbabweans are very much more a sort of diaspora an hour of than a, a group within the country. So who's in charge today? Well, it's President Emerson Manangwagwa, who has been in since the last year. So it's a presidential system, the executive presidency, uh, taking much of the power. Yeah. Um, that wasn't always the case. But, um they have this strange proportional representation. So everybody's most MPs are elected on a first-past-the-post system like in the UK or Malaysia, which we were discussing a few weeks ago. But uh, they have a proportional representation system in order to top up the number of female MPs. Is that right? Yeah, there was a constitutional amendment brought in in, I think, 2008, I want to say, um, which 
specifically created a list for women MPs. I think it makes up a third of of Parliament or something around that. Um, which, but it's a kind of odd thing in that it expires constitutionally in 2022. Um, so it's very much a sort of um, time expired sort of aspect. But it's quite a unique uh, in that. Most many other African countries have made efforts, obviously, to improve women's um, representation in Parliament, but Zimbabwe is one of very few that has actually constitutionally enshrined that in the Constitution, although obviously the extent to which that sort of works in terms of how far we can consider it a democracy still is obviously debatable, but it's clearly a good symbolic move, at least, um, for women's rights in the country. So Zimbabwe gets its name from the ancient settlement of the Great Zimbabwe, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, which was a, a major capital along the along with the Swahili trading routes uh, along the coast, uh, like what is today Tanzania down to Mozambique. And the Great Zimbabwe was an inland settlement, which is still there today from the African Iron Age, which is like a huge construct of uh, stone building. And interestingly, the white supremacist regime of Ian Smith refused to recognise that it was built by, Af- by black Africans, didn't they? Yeah. They had some strange conspiracy theories about whites coming over and making it hundreds of years ago. Well, this is the thing, because um, I think the first people to encounter the Great Zimbabwe as a civilization were the Portuguese in, in Mozambique, um, who flat out denied that Africans could possibly build something as sort of cohesive as civilization as it was. So it sort of serves as a kind of, in terms of like the colonial view of history, it serves as a kind of like black mark on, you know, or Africans can't build anything or can't do anything or have a cohesive civilization. Great Zimbabwe very much points to the idea actually pre-colonial, there was a system which worked and Africans could create their own civilization. It sort of bends the whole civilizing narrative in some ways. And so it's very symbolic that they named the country after this uh, pre-colonial civilization. Yeah, also because I think it has some sort of unifying aspect as well in terms of like the Great Zimbabwe is something that people all across Zimbabwe, regardless of the sort of ethnic divide, can sort of find some sort of root in. Hmm. So let's move on to the history. Indeed. So, uh, obviously, uh, pre-colonial, there was the Great Zimbabwe and lots of other civilizations that lived. But, I mean, uh, arbitrarily, we're going to begin with the uh, movement of Cecil Rhodes into uh, Zimbabwe and his takeover by his South African, the British South African Mining Company, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, Cecil Rhodes obviously pursued a route of colonization that was more a company sort of runs the land. Um, so he kind of moves in and gradually creates Rhodesia as it became known. Because he, he um, begins with deals with the Ndebele king, and then he just uses that in it as an excuse to push into Shona territory and uh, gather more land. Yeah, because ultimately it became a sort of one of the foundation blocks of his ultimate ideological goal, which was the Cape to Cairo Railway. Um, so therefore, after sort of taking over most of Rhodesia, he moves on up into Zam- today's Zambia, which was then northern Rhodesia. Um, so, so Zimbabwe gets known as southern Rhodesia. Indeed, over time. Um, mm. But very much initially, Zimbabwe was sort of one of the a kind of extension of South Africa in some ways. Because at the point where Cecil Rhodes moves into Rhodesia, South Africa is not a cohesive union until 1910. So actually, it's quite a useful sort of British outlet away from the sort of Boer run, um, Transvaal and so on in South Africa. Mm. Um, so it's all sort of part of the great power games more than anything 
Um, but Rhodes nominally runs it as a company rather than a British yeah. sort of Yeah, and then aspect. it becomes a part of the British Empire in 1923. Indeed, yeah. Uh, and what do the British do? I mean, the main thing that the British do is encourage settlement in big numbers. Um, but this is obviously based around sort of commercial farming, um, cash crops and so on. And th- that's why even even today, vast swathes of uh, land are owned by whites. Yeah, um, because whites were, in some sense at least, quite successful in terms of like developing an economy and developing a reasonably effective agricultural system, albeit one that relies heavily on sort of oppressing the local population to be able to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, cash crops became the basis of it, and obviously land ownership since has been a very controversial um, topic, which Zimbabwe and Zambia, the two different Rhodesias, have obviously treated quite differently as time's gone on. Well, that's partly because Zambia had a much smaller white population yeah, than Zimbabwe. Yeah, of course. And so I think this is... Uh, so there's the, as we discussed before, the ill-fated uh, federation of Zealand and Rhodesia. Indeed, yeah. Um, a sort of project by the... I mean, basically what happens after World War Two is the settlers are sort of powerful enough as a unit and there's enough of them that they begin to sort of push back against the winds of change, as Harold Macmillan would call it. Um, so the Federation is a sort of effort to create a kind of cohesive um, white state in some ways, or a white-run state which can sort of outlast much of the British Empire in Africa. Um, but Malawi and Zambia, the other two uh, bits of this Federation, get independence, and th- there's pressure by the British government for white majority for for white minority rule in Rhodesia in southern Rhodesia to end um and how does Ian Smith who is the white supremacist leader uh, deal with that yeah well cuz the federation ends in 1963 um because Zambia and Malawi have kind of had enough and declare independence fairly quickly afterwards whereas Ian Smith is but they declare independence on the base... The British Empire will only allow countries to declare independence on the basis of majority, so black rule. Um, Ian Smith won't have that and is sort of entrenched enough domestically and has a powerful enough base because of that 8% white settler population. Because they have quite a strong army and police, etc. Yeah, and, and obviously with apartheid South Africa next door, which is very much a sort of willing patron, especially at that time, where it was still reasonably economically strong and not sort of too worried about its close neighbours. Um, so Ian Smith's emboldened eventually to do what's known as the UDI, the Unilateral Declaration of Independence, in 1965. And this becomes a thorn in the side of the British government, doesn't it? Because they can't get rid of it because it's not... It's declared independence, Southern Rhodesia has. Um, but but no-one's recognising that independence. Yeah, I mean, there's debates at the time about um, about whether the British should intervene, about whether the British should send an army, which Harold Wilson, the Prime Minister, sort of flat-out denies because it's just not considered important enough to be dealing with it at that point. Um, But, yeah, as you say, like, it's completely unsolvable. And, obviously, A, you've got South Africa, who want a white supremacist state next door because it bolsters their security, will obviously prop it up. So it's not just going to collapse on its own terms necessarily, but equally the UK don't have any effective control. Although they continue to nominate governors and so on for the state throughout its time. Um, so nominally it's still treated as part of the British Empire, even though it's sort of like China and Taiwan. Like China nominally say that Taiwan is theirs and that they have control, but they don't actually have control. It's a very similar situation. Well, except for China want Taiwan, whereas the yeah. British government definitely did not want to deal uh, with Zimbabwe at this time, or, or southern Rhodesia. Yeah, very much sort of 
sub-Saharan Africa had now fallen off the priorities list at the point where it's decolonized. And I, th- I think it's important to really emphasize how bad the regime, because Ian Smith does sound like the name of a boring accountant, doesn't he? Well, he was a boring, you know, a boring <laughs> farmer, I think. But yeah, he was... but like they, they are a hardline white supremacist regime who believe in their superiority over the black man, and they are willing to use force to do to entrench their position, aren't they? Yeah, I mean Ian Smith after after he after he eventually sort of leaves in, in, in well leaves the government in 1980, tries to come up with sort of various excuses for it, but it's obviously based on the same principle of apartheid, and it's a racist regime which systematically in, entrenched sort of discrimination against and th- th- blacks. This so. is what leads to the civil war. It's the systematic oppression of black people by this white supremacist regime that leads to the formation of ZANU and ZAPU, the two uh, f- freedom fighter organisations. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, the difference between Zimbabwe and South Africa is, um, obviously, South Africa, you don't really get a civil war per se in mm. overthrowing a white regime. But in Zimbabwe, you do, partly because there's black African states that neighbour it, which will provide a base, like Zambia being the obvious example. Um, but also, Kenneth Kuunda was quite supportive. Yeah, but also in terms of like in terms of the Zimbabwean regime, well, the Rhodesian regime at the time just didn't have the same strength in numbers. It didn't like eight percent ultimately didn't prove to be a sort of critical mass that you can sustain a minority regime with in a way that the fifteen twenty percent in South Africa proved that for a time at least, you could. Um, so as a result, they're sort of hamstrung by the fact they just don't have enough people to go around to fight in the army. If it, you know, you can only do so much with high-tech weapons. But also, the UDI, because they're not recognised as independent and they're not really economically significant in a way that South Africa was, international pressure becomes much more sustained against Rhodesia than it ever was against South Africa. Yeah, because there, um, um, there were sanctions... Although they didn't get sanctions at the UN, all the countries around it have sanctions against it. The US and the UK have sanctions. Yeah, against it. Um, yeah. Like there was consistent sanctions against against Rhodesia. There's a very effective um, oil embargo, amongst other things. Um, so there's a sort of difference in that you're able to sort of collectively get an in, an international sort of effort around it in a way so, that you never did yeah. with South Africa. So let's discuss the guerrilla movement. So there were two main guerrilla forces. Yep. Um, so there was ZANU, which was the Zimbabwean African National Union, which was led by Robert Mugabe. And there was ZAPU, which was the Zimbabwean African People's Union, which was read, led by Joshua Nkomo. Um, and obviously, uh, ostensibly, the main difference is meant to be that they both embody different forms of communism, isn't mm. it? Um, but there's also tribal elements, because Joshua Nkomo is Ndebele and Robert Mugabe is uh, Shona. Yeah, I mean, it's always complex, sort of adding ethnicity into, like, factoring the differences between them. But I'd say that, like, ethnicity was used as a sort of tool for recruitment and so on, and probably formed part of her animosity. Although I think Joshua Nakoma and Robert Mugabe, to some extent, never really personally saw eye to eye. Um, so it's easy to overstate the ethnic aspect, but it clearly did exist, and obviously... But there were obviously people from different ethnicities in both groups, Um because you know, if you're if you're a Maoist, then you join Zanu, and if you're a Marxist-Leninist, <laughs> Marxist-Leninist, you join Zapu. Indeed, the well-known difference that we're all very familiar with between the two. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, they, they both have a key role in forcing Ian Smith to the final negotiating table, because there are an awful lot of negotiating tables in this period, aren't there? Yeah. Um, I mean, 
both are militarily quite successful. Um, although, interestingly, the sort of white population of Rhodesia really don't start to clock onto this until about 1976, 1977, because both benefit hugely from Mozambique next door mm. um, becoming independent in 1975. Um, and a key sort of platform for the Frelimo government there was obviously get Zimbabwe in independence. Um, so they benefit massively from having that as a reserve area. But then the sort of catalyst is two Air Rhodesia planes are shot down, I think one by each organisation in about 1978. Um which really hits home in white Rhodesian society about you in know, Salisbury, uh, which is today Harare. Yeah, in ter- in terms of in terms of look, this is a ridiculous situation. It's clearly unsustainable. More and more people are leaving South Africa because that appears to be quite secure. Um, so the whole thing so rapidly sort the, of the news was if you were a white supremacist, go to South Africa. <laughs> yeah, essentially, um, because they'd welcome you with open arms. So why not? But. Um, yeah, Ian Smith sort of begins tenuously to move towards negotiation, um, but very much on the basis of trying to keep the entrenched white elite in power in the state as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get an agreement in 1978 where the country's renamed Zimbabwe Rhodesia with um, Bishop Mazarosa, I think. As um, president, or is it? Yeah, yeah so he's a point... And, and like, so, yeah, because it comes back under... British rule, sort of, doesn't it? Well, but this agreement comes out and Ian Smith announces, look, we've changed it, it's great. But then the problem is, is that it hasn't changed because the army's still under white rule, the Supreme Court and other things are still under white rule, Parliament is given half over to a list of the whites, which is clearly grossly disproportionate to the actual portion of the population. Um, so this doesn't really gain any international traction. Um, Zanu and Zapu don't accept it, so then they sort of come back to the negotiating table for the Lancaster House. And then you House get the agreement. Lancaster House Agreement. Indeed. And, and what does this? So, what 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 does the Lancaster House Agreement do? I mean, I mean, Lancaster House essentially transfers it back to British rule, and then obviously British rule with a view to independence after elections. Um, I mean, there's a few concessions like land redistribution is sort of named as something that's going to happen. Because um, the, the British government say that if a farmer is willing to give up their land willingly, then they'll pay for it or something. Yeah, but the definition of willing always being slightly kind of... Mm, um, 10% of seats in Parliament are reserved for whites. Um, so essentially, that sort of is a kind of slight sop towards, well, whites still have some role in Parliament because it's based on a parliamentary system. So you get a president who's a figurehead. Um, and then a prime minister who actually does the business. So parliament, in theory, is much more powerful than it now is. Um, but as an election in 1980 before independence... And, and this is overseen by the British, and it's absolutely free and fair, and Robert Mugabe wins it hands down. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Um, Ian Smith wins all of the white reserved seats um, for the Rhodesian Front, which I think is renamed shortly afterwards. But Mugabe overwhelmingly wins in the sort of general and general he, vote. And, like, so he wins very highly in the Shona areas and Joshua Nkomo wins very highly in the Ndebele areas. Yeah, which kind of stores up problems, um, yes. shall we say, as time goes on. But I, I think, b- before we move on, I think it's really important to stress, like, how much, uh, how important it is the role uh, Mugabe was seen as a uh, a leader against the white rule. His role as a revolutionary freedom fighter, if you like. Yeah, because the difference between Mugabe and a lot of other um, a lot of other leaders at the time is most of them were sort of given independence in a way in terms of the British decided 
games up his independence. Like Zimbabweans actually had to fight for independence. Um, and th- this stores up a lot of credibility for Robert Mugabe for years to come, even when the economy isn't doing. That yeah, well, certainly. So. I mean, it's it's a similar thing that you see in Mozambique with Samora Michelle and so on. Like it's a it's a if you have actually fought for independence, you obviously gain mountains more credibility than you do otherwise. Um, so yeah, so his personal popularity certainly at the beginning is fairly undeniable, um, uh, certainly amongst Shona people. And and obviously there's several elections in which he does win and they're free and fair and they're electoral observers and we'll discuss that. But so straight after the election there begins to be troubles in Matabeleland, isn't there? Or yeah. gradually. It's a gradual process. Because the Zanu Zapu sort of split isn't really resolved. Mm. Um and it's very much a case of I think power goes slightly to Robert Mugabe's head and he then decides to there's moves towards autocracy already in the 1980s. Um, for example, the, the white role in Parliament is dispensed with fairly quickly. There's a presidential system introduced in 1986, I think. But the immediate bit before that is Robert Mugabe decides that he is going to assert himself as the sort of number one ruler of the country. No mm. one can really dispute it. Um, which tragically ends in sort of violence, essentially, in Matabele land and, and huge they're, persecution. They're, uh... There are massacres, basically, really. Yeah, of, of civilians. Because the North Koreans offer to give the Zanu guerrillas, or now army, training um, in sort of shock tactics. They all come back or are trained and then systematically kill huge numbers of Nimbeli people, um, which, and unfortunately... I, 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 this, this is where maybe we get the first glimpse of our of the new president, uh, Emerson Munangagwa, who was yeah. currently security, who was security secretary at this time uh, in Robert Mugabe's uh, cabinet. Claims, claims to have known that nothing was going on, um, which seems obviously a slightly questionable claim, given that this is very much state-sponsored suppre- uh, oppression. But you know, okay, <laughs> like there, there were they they did seem to find arms stored by. Zapu, didn't they? Yeah, but I think clearly the response was incredibly disproportionate mm. from from Zanu, and it remains a sort of sore. I mean, it's something that up until recently hasn't really been able to be talked about um, because of sort of state suppression and state censorship and so on. Um, but it very much remains, I think, quite a scarring experience. I mean, for obvious reasons, for people in Matabele land. And uh, up to around, they reckon, uh, up to around eighty thousand people died in the several years of these. Yeah, um, I mean, eventually ends with a peace deal. Um, and the peace deal is basically the end of the opposition because Zanu and Zapu formed together to form today's uh, great party, uh, Zanu PF. Yeah, um, obviously combining the patriotic and the national to make the pf but yeah um i mean yeah it's kind of complicated in terms of like it's difficult mugabe gets what he wants basically in terms of the opposition is liquidated if you like and what remains is a sort of rump opposition which quickly becomes sort of parliament becomes fairly irrelevant at the point it becomes a presidential system but all the while the economy is ticking along nicely mugabe is still treated as like a sort of Hero. Very well-respected hero, certainly internationally. Um, he comes to visit the UK, I think, even at some point in the 80s. Well, yeah, I mean, in 1991, even, um, the Queen Elizabeth visited uh, Harare and opened a new art gallery for the Commonwealth Summit and stuff. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think internationally, people were quite willing to turn a blind eye um, to Matabele land, partly because it's very hard to beat the narrative about Mugabe as the 
sort of anti-Rhodesian hero. And also, once you have this peace process, once the Ndebele people are part of the patriotic front, yeah. so to speak, then then the issue is it's more the the, the division is now between it becomes about. Uh, every, Zanu and Zappo are seen as war veterans. It's all about the war veterans and about the heroes from uh, the white struggle. It's no longer a Zanu Zappu. Yeah, this is the thing. I think, and then there's a very strong narrative built up around you know the heroes. Um, you have a holiday every year in August, Heroes Day, which commemorates the fallen. Playing to Mugabe's best strengths, essentially, in terms of like Mugabe's clearest credibility, it's clearly from being a war hero. It makes sense to create a societal narrative about being a war hero. So, so I, th- I think there are three things to now discuss <clears throat> between, uh, you know, Robert Mugabe coming to power and so- and ZANU PF being formed uh, yep. in the late eighties, and the current day situation. Yeah. So we have the deterioration of democracy. Yeah. Uh, the economic situation and land reform, which are all very significant issues, and all kind of interrelated, really. Yeah. So should we? So. Briefly, should we discuss, like, how does democracy deteriorate? Because it clearly starts off as the free and fair elections in 1982. Yeah, I mean, as we're saying, sort of, there begins to be a slightly more autocratic element as you move through the 80s. Removing the white list is not really mourned by anyone, and it's probably sensible. But that aside, things like moving to the presidential system... Um, arguably create the sort of conditions for a general deterioration. And when you have um, no opposition, the, like ZANU-PF is now effectively the state, the judiciary, the civil service, everything is ZANU-PF. Yeah, because Mugabe has so many seats in parliament that he can just do what he wants. Um, but when, like by 1991, there were reforms of the judicial system to give them government power to like just remove people or put them in prison without uh, judicial procedures and stuff. Yeah, the key thing though being that I think even during the 1990s, the economy is still ticking over reasonably well. So people are not you know hugely, fervently, massively in, in favour of ZANU PF, but probably sort of not desperately discontented with the status quo. Although we, the you know, there's no opposition party really strongly. It, we can really say that until 2002, the elections are as free and fair. Like, if there are free and fair elections to the extent that there are, Robert Mugabe's winning them legitimately because he is winning such high percentages. Yeah, like, he'd probably still win up to that point. Although I think there obviously begins to be concern in the country as, obviously, he gets older, um, that he's not going to disappear anywhere. Um, and, and, yeah, and so the the problems in the economy lead to, which we'll discuss in a second, lead to the formation of the Movement for Democratic Change by a trade unionist called Morgan Shangarai. Yeah. Um, in 1999? Indeed. Um, partly because I think by by the late 90s, the economic situation has begun to run out of steam. Um, people are beginning to get more concerned about Mugabe, generally sort of wanting to take over. Um, so obviously, Shangarai sort of spots an opportunity, um, which does become quite successful quite quickly. Um, the trade union movement being reasonably strong in Zimbabwe anyway. At this point. Yeah. Um, so that gives him a good base in which to sort of escalate. But he's in no sense quickly. immune. You know, he gets beaten up by the police regularly and... You yeah, know. consistently harassed um, throughout his time as leader, really. Um, very tragically died last year. Um, but sort of, obviously, it's it's a sign that there's still some sort of democratic system about in terms of like 
he is able to set up a new party and it does reasonably well. Although clearly that's very much constrained by the wider problems in, in the country. And so how does the economic situation uh, well, play into this? Well, I think the economic situation is linked back to this sort of faltering concern in the late 90s in terms of Mugabe begins to sort of sense that he's outstayed his welcome, the economy begins to slow down. So he goes, well, the thing which is most likely to bring big popularity in which people obviously want is land reform. Um, because at this time, you know, the small white population still has about 70% of fertile agricultural land. Yeah, because the economy wasn't m really much changed from 1980 at this point. Like, you know, cash crops continue. Um, employment's reasonably good, but it's not well paid. And um, so although white farmers that were willing to move the land was bought off them, not many were because they were happy with the settlement they had. Yeah, um... So what you get in 2000 is the sort of launching of a major land reform programme, which essentially descends quite quickly into anarchy, but essentially involves forcibly removing white farmers from, from their farms. Um, because there's two sort of steps. There's the bit with the government wanting land, but there's also Robert Mugabe's rhetoric. And it, it's unclear kind of how much control he has, but militias basically start forcibly yeah. taking land not really sponsored by the state by this point, but more sort of encouraged by Mugabe individually. I think an initial experiment to make it look like a very popular move quickly escalates, because there's obviously a lot of pent-up anger about this, but obviously it escalates into something that's sort of much, much bigger um, and much more damaging. Um, obviously, land reform in principle is probably a good idea, but uncontrolled land reform very quickly... Led by militias. Yeah, means that you get people taking over farms with no knowledge as to how to farm them. Um, corruption very quickly becomes an aspect. So essentially what you get is a huge collapse in farm yields um, as they form the majority of the economy, economy nosedives. Mm. And, and th th this isn't the only thing going wrong with the economy. There are other things going wrong. Yeah. Um, I mean, they suffer generally from a sort of decline in world commodity prices, but also hyperinflation very quickly becomes a thing because the government's Why response... Why does the government print so much money? Because, I mean, this is one of the things we do know about Zimbabwe worldwide. Yeah. People want a billion dollars Zimbabwean note. I mean, I think it's a sort of effort to outrun global markets in some ways in terms of we'll just make money and it'll be fine because everything's rigged against us. You can see why they feel that way, but obviously it's not going to work um, because very quickly prices are rising so quickly um, because the government's adding to the money supply so much that it quickly just becomes totally worthless, um, which clearly is a bad thing in terms of people's savings are wiped out. Well, yeah, um, and the, the people start emigrating, not just whites, but also the middle classes from Harare and Bulawayo quickly start leaving to Europe if they're in professional jobs or South Africa. Uh, particularly. Yeah, you get a huge movement of unskilled labour to South Africa especially. Because uh, uh, around the two, the early 2000s the population of Zimbabwe actually just stays flat, despite the fact every other country is yeah. increasing. Yeah, um, I mean... Because of the huge emigration. Yeah, certainly illegal migration to South Africa has become a huge problem for both countries. Um, which... Yeah, I mean, you now get large diaspora communities in, in the UK and South Africa and so on, um, which is mostly, I mean, not entirely, but mostly due to this economic collapse, which essentially comes about because the government very quickly loses control of land reform. Um, 
but also doesn't seem that bothered about it because most Zanu bigwigs profit very much from land reform in terms of they get a lot of land allocated to them because corruption exists. Um, and therefore, they're and, quite and happy also, with the settlement. Pe- people that do want land reform, you know, there's this feeling that war veterans deserve it and war veterans are the people in ZANU-PF. Yeah, yeah, or ZANU-PF claims the war veterans are, are the people. But yeah, um, yeah, I think, again, you get this sort of hero's narrative, which is very difficult to deal with at the point where it's so firmly entrenched in the country as you cannot disrespect these people and so on. So, yeah. And then, so this culminates in the the election of 2008, really. By this point, there are no election observers allowed. You know, everything is looking quite dodgy. But the movement for democratic change in the first round of the presidential election, they have a two-round system, wins, right? It does. Um, And there's a very clear sense in terms of sentiment that the MDC are far in the ascendancy. Um, Shangarai gets like 48%, is it? And Mugabe gets 44% or something? Yeah, something like that. Which obviously is sort of unheard of in Zimbabwe and that it's clearly expected that Mugabe will just win, um, if not because he's sort of, you know, popular because he's rigged the, the election. So the fact that Shangarai wins... And, and this is despite it, there being pretty clear evidence that votes are going missing from Harare and Bulawayo. Yeah. Um, like, it's obviously a, the two it, main bases of the MDC, those are. But yeah, it's obviously... But I think, yeah, because it's important to stress that ZANU-PF still does very well in the rural areas, even now, even yeah. today. Uh, Partly because of the land reform issue, mm. because people in rural areas see they've got more land, that's probably a good thing, and therefore they're reasonably content with it, whereas urban urban dwellers see the cost of bread's increase massively, they don't have means of supporting themselves. But yeah, the 2008 election very quickly becomes a big crisis, um, eventually because Changrai is forced to drop out of the second round, which... Presumably, you would How does that happen? How does someone end up being forced to not run? I mean, there's all kinds of intimidation, um, general sort of accusations flying around, but mostly a huge threat of violence and indeed some actual violence from ZANU-PF thugs, for want of a better word, um, which Changrai sort of senses, this isn't worth it because they're not going to let me win. Um, so all it's going to do is produce violence, which is probably bad. And then... So, the- so although this means Mugabe basically de facto therefore wins the presidential election, the parliamentary election, the ZANU-PF doesn't have a majority. Yeah. I mean, Zimbabwe also notably becomes a huge international pariah after this. Mm. Um, there's pressure from South Africa, from even you know autocratic states like Angola, that this can't happen. Um, but yeah, so you get a situation in Parliament where the MDC... Well, ZANU-PF need to rely on the MDC. And this damages the MDC's and Shangarai's credibility, doesn't it? Yeah, because they come up with a power-sharing agreement which is sort of brokered by SADC, um, the, the, the regional grouping. development Yeah, um, but the problem with this is because ZANU-PF is the state, ZANU-PF can do what they want and just parry all the blame now onto the MDC when things go wrong. So the MDC really blow up into infighting, Changrai becomes very tarnished as Prime Minister. Eventually they quit the deal, but there's a lot of lasting damage done. I think I think it's interesting because a lot of people wouldn't know that there was a coalition because because Robert Mugabe and Zimbabwe are often thought of the bo- uh, boogeyman of like uh, international diplomacy. Whereas to think of them having a, a coalition 
Yeah. It, it suggests a higher level of democracy than we're used to thinking about Zimbabwe having. Perhaps, yeah. Or I think that NDC didn't really have very much choice in it and that, you know, Mugabe sensed an opportunity. Um, I think it's easy to overstate the extent to which the democracy really exists, particularly as in 2012, Mugabe very clearly, well, clearly in terms of the official results, wins the election, but it's disputable given the sort of trauma of the past 12 years, how much that kind of been But fair. I think what's interesting about that, even even in these really disputed elections, he's still not winning Harare or Bulawayo, where thousands of thousands of votes are going missing. Yeah, yeah. it's he, he, Even rigging an election, he's still not winning the cities. Yeah. <laughs> which just indicates how unpopular he is, where Parliament, where the... But I think you have to draw a line is. between how popular he is in terms of like the present day or the recent present relative to how people see him as like his role in Zimbabwe. Mm. Like I think people resent Mugabe a lot. They certainly resent his wife, who I'm sure we'll come on to. Um, but equally still have, I think, a lot of respect for him in terms of the independence struggle more generally going back to that hero's narrative. So it's very difficult to kind of assess how popular he is because I think there's a two-sided aspect to his popularity or unpopularity, mm. which kind of, probably cancel each other out in some ways but i think ultimately discontent becomes greater and greater and greater as you know he's having huge birthday cakes for you know his 92nd birthday or whatever with like the headquarters of zanu pf whereas like you know it's all going to pot in the country otherwise so that yeah that's very interesting so i think the economic situation is not good uh, democracy is deteriorated. I, th- I think there's one thing to note before we move on to the current situation is that uh, Zimbabwe's economy sort of uh, is solved when they move to using foreign currencies, isn't it? Well, I wouldn't say it's solved. Um, <laughs> I think it's more sort of throwing in the towel in the official economy. Um, yeah, they move to, I mean, officially it's a combination of euros, US dollars, rand. But they, they basically but, use but the US the dollar. the US dollar is used everywhere. And then um, small changes use bond notes, which are... Yeah, because they come up with a problem in that they've only got, I think, the lowest denomination US bill they can get is $5. So then, obviously, it's inflationary to then make everything multiples of $5. Um, so, But they can't get hold of smaller currency because the US Treasury, obviously, officially aren't allowing Zimbabwe to become part of a dollar union. Um, <laughs> so... What then happens is they have to print their own money. Um, I think there's been the growth of a black market for these and Mm -hmm. the emergence of sort of two parallel exchange rates, which then becomes quite hard to reconcile and makes economic recovery even harder than it already is. Okay, so with that, let's move on to the the fall of Robert Mugabe and the current issues in election today. Yeah, the coup that wasn't a coup. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think the calling it a coup poses metaphysical problems for the nature of a coup, doesn't it? Really? It does, yes. Because um, all all people involved claim it wasn't a coup because that would make it treason, and that's not okay. So I, I think let's go through the events. What happened? So the army rolls in to Harare, indeed, um, and they take over ZBC, the state broadcaster. Yeah. A military general, is it a general? An army officer? Army officer takes over ZBC, the TV station. And he goes on the TV station and says, this is not a coup. Which I think is your first indication it might be a coup. The classic recipe for a coup, of course, (laughs) being a military officer on the TV stating that this isn't a coup. Um, 
And then, and then what happens? So Robert Mugabe says he's not going anywhere. And, and the, the, the army say, this has nothing to do with Robert Mugabe. Our issue is Grace Mugabe. So I think, yeah, so who is Grace? Yeah, um, Grace is a former typist in the president's state house um, who catches the president's eye. Um, his first wife, Sally, died, I think, of cancer. Um, after she died, um, Robert and Grace get together, happily married. Um Initially, Grace seems quite happy to just go shopping in Singapore and spend a lot of money on she's, Gucci she's handbags. By, she's known by the Western media as Gucci Grace. Yeah, and indeed in Zimbabwe as well. Um, but as time moves on, it becomes clear that she's got bigger sort of fish to fry, particularly as Robert obviously gets older, begins to look, you know, towards death, as it were, um, and succession. She, so. she, she's made the uh, head of the Women's League of ZANU-PF. Yeah, which is a very powerful position in terms of it's one of the key roles in the party hierarchy. But, but yeah, what was most striking is she was doing speeches and ZANU-PF's loyalists were booing her. Yeah, she's deeply unpopular, but equally has a huge behind-the-scenes influence. Um, people become increasingly concerned that Robert Mugabe's mental faculties aren't quite there Because it was unclear in the last few years whether he was actually really in charge. Yeah, like, I mean, he was falling asleep in speeches, he didn't know what he was saying. Um, so it becomes unclear who's running things, but there seems to be a definite sort of footprint of grace on them. There's a dispute over the vice presidency um, where two of the vice presidents are forced to flee in And, and it looks like year. Robert Mugabe is lining her up to be the next president, doesn't it? Yeah, because there's a dispute between her and Manning um yeah. about who who is going to move forward, Manningwanga being the official vice president. Um, but Grace, obviously, having the ear of a man who isn't what he was, probably puts her in something of pole position to take it. But and, this uh, is a huge problem for ZANU-PF generally. And her faction is known as Generation 40. Yeah. It's not quite clear where the name of the group comes from, but they're, they're opposed to the... Uh, I mean, if you think of the two factions, Generation 40 is the younger members and there's the war veterans. Yeah, I mean, G40 is formed of people who did well out of land reform. Um, mm. I think it's fairly safe to say. Generally younger, enjoying the spoils of, you know... Corruption. Corruption. Um, large pots of land, don't want that system to change, but also don't really feel the kind of same reverence towards a hero's generation as as those older people do. Mm. And, like, the, it's quite striking. Pe it seems to be that people feel like the war veterans are deserving in some sense of the spoils of power whereas generation 40 are not grace and her like i mean <clears throat> her and her sons the corruption that they the the spoils they enjoy of corruption yeah. are not seen as deserving i think partly because g40 are so blatantly obvious with how corrupt they are um grace's sons regularly get covered in the zimbabwean press out on jaunts in you, Johannesburg. you can find them on instagram it's, yeah it's quite an appalling um, they, they poured champagne over a rolex watch just to prove how rich they were i believe yeah um whereas obviously war veterans are doing well for themselves but don't have instagram um aren't being <laughs> obvious about how much money they're making so although they're probably both up to the same things g40 is so sort of blatantly narcissistic but no one really has any popular allegiance towards them. So so the, the army have rolled in. They want Grace out of the way. Mm -hmm. And it, it's clear... And Munangagwa flies back in from South Africa, doesn't he? Yeah, where he he's been up. exiled in inverted commas. Um, and it's kind of unclear what's going to happen because Sadek, which is the 
development community, the sort of glo- local grouping, they're quite divided about what to do because there's never been a coup within the grouping and they don't want there to be a coup now. They, want, they don't want to legitimise a coup. Yeah. And the army doesn't want to call it a coup because that's unconstitutional. Uh, ZANU-PF don't want a coup because they don't want to be part of treason. And, and like I suppose it's an important thing to mention that this is a fight within ZANU-PF. I mean, although that yeah. means Zimbabwe generally, it's not its not a takeover of the country, it's a takeover of ZANU-PF. I mean, yeah, because you get this very weird standoff between ZANU and, um, well, between different factions of ZANU, particularly between Robert Mugabe, who's in the presidential palace the whole time, and everyone else who's persistently trying to persuade him, games up, resign, because if he resigns, it's not a coup, because he's just resigned under pressure, which is different to being extra-constitutionally overthrown. So technically, it's not a coup um, because eventually he does resign. Because wasn't there were also divides within SADC as well, weren't there? Like, yeah, uh, was Angola was supportive, but uh... well, because at the time Jacob Zuma, who had bound much of his credibility on Robert Mugabe, was still in power in South Africa. But um, he, he wasn't really sure what to do about it because obviously Joshua Malema and the economic freedom fighters were banging the drum for Mugabe, but it was a somewhat of a sticky situation for yeah, Jacob Zuma. Yeah, it was Zuma. difficult politically. Um, and, and Jacob Zuma, was a, he, he was the one that sent the mediators from South Africa, his cabinet ministers, to go and mediate in Zimbabwe on behalf of SADC. Yeah, um, as did others from Botswana, um, Angola and so on. Um, but yeah, eventually you get this agreement where Mugabe resigns as giving guarantees about It's a very mysterious resignation though because he continues to give speech uh, like press uh, he, give, he continues to give interviews afterwards where he says it was an atrocity that happened to the country. Yeah. I mean clearly he's forced to resign under pressure. Um I think that much is obvious but the the whole thing is totally bizarre basically. Um but because there was no bloodshed either. I mean not not to anyone not on a significant scale. No. Um but there, there does seem to be a mysterious disappearance of G40 supporters. Yeah, and Grace is sent away somewhere, it's unclear where, for a bit, although she then does pop up back in Harare. Um, the whole thing is, I think, again, this just shows the internal mechanisms of ZANU-PF. It's incredibly complex, um, difficult to follow, but that's the point, because that's what's been so successful for them. So, so yeah, so this leads to Emerson Mnangagwa becoming the head of ZANU-PF and then eventually president uh, of Zimbabwe. Yeah. And he, he says he's not going to extend the limit. He wants there to be proper democracy. He does an interview with the Financial Times where he's going to allow in election observers. Yep. And he, he's, he does lots of interviews with Western press because he wants investment back in Zimbabwe. Yeah, he goes on this big international press tour, which... I think initially people are happy that there's someone other than Mugabe, who has obviously become a bit of a joke figure in the West. Um, but how credible his claims are remains to be seen. Is Munangagwa different? Because he's been part of the cabinet of Mugabe ever since the beginning. You know, he's a war veteran. I mean, he's still 74 or whatever. You know, he's not exactly young himself. I think the difference is that he knows that if he rigs the election blatantly this year then he's really toast. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a clear recognition in ZANU-PF that they need to at least play along with democracy. Um, if they don't, it's very debatable what's actually going to happen. Um, so, so, so what do you think is going to happen in the election? So obviously, uh, as we discussed, um, Morgan Shangarai sadly passed away. So the MDC is still the biggest opposition group, I mean, although they're infighting and fractures. They're still the one led by 
the MDC that survived, that was led by Shanghai, now has a new leader. Um, he's called Nelson uh, Chamisa. Chamisa? Yeah, Chamisa. Um, and he's not as charismatic as Shanghai, is he really? He's not, but I think it's done the MDC good to have a fresh face. Changrai obviously being tarnished by that power sharing agreement. Um, he's, you know, done a solid job. He's a good campaigner. Um, they're building up support in outside their traditional strongholds. So, Afro- yeah. Afrobarometer put the polls currently. I mean, there is not much polling in Zimbabwe, so this is the best we've got. But uh, Afrobarometer currently suggests that the first round would be around 42% to ZANU-PF and 31% to the MDC. Yeah, um, it all depends on how far ZANU-PF is successful, A, in continuing to sort of not buy rural votes, but provide strong inducements for rural votes, and B, how far the MDC are able to organise and show that they're not just an urban elitist party. Polling pinch of salt, I'd say, but likely there'll be a second round, I think. And, and do, you, do, you think, do you think the elections are going to be credible? <laughs> I think they'll be more credible than they were, but I think the underlying issues will remain with the media freedom. Um, because even if the MDC win, it's clear that the army is pulling the strings. You know? Yeah, I think it's unlikely that the election will be blatantly rigged, but I think the lead-up to the election is taking place under a quite restrained media civil society environment, which means it's difficult to call it free and fair. Yeah, the, 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 the army would never allow the MDC to win, would it? Probably not. Um... But we'll see. Um, I think they have a big credibility problem if it's obvious the MDC are massively popular and then they're not allowed to win. But equally, because they need international money more than anything. So this is as much about getting international funding as it is securing their future. Um, Or the two sort of go hand in hand. So So it's unlikely the MDC will actually win on their own accord, I think, anyway. Um, Maningwaga being quite popular in terms of having got rid of Mugabe... Um, but we'll see. So, finally, on that point, mm-hmm. do you think the economy and things are going to pick up in Zimbabwe now? Are things going to get better? Well, things haven't got better, really, since the coup. Um, mostly because I think international donors are sort of waiting with bated breath to see what will happen. If there's a free and fair election, maybe. But the structural problems are so deep that it's difficult to see how and where, particularly as neighbouring economies are also slowing down, which presents an additional issue. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to Political World, and if you enjoyed the programme, don't forget to give us a good rating as it helps others find it. You can also subscribe wherever you found this podcast to make sure you catch all our future episodes. Our guest today was Sam Maybe, and the music was from Blue Dot Sessions. Join us again next time on Political World.